0: All right. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a forum where clinicians, students, and coaches network discuss and share ideas and resources related to sports med, athlete rehab, and performance. We're adding webinars, continuing education uh, courses, discussions, and more in the academy and forum on the regular So to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. This podcast can also be found on the website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Shoot us a review if you like us. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the continuing education coordinator for a clinical athlete and a physiotherapist himself at King Physiotherapy and Foot Clinic in Ontario, Canada. He's a certified strength and conditioning specialist and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive lifter himself with a hammy that's strained. What up, Jared? <laughs> oh,
1: Thanks for throwing that last part in there, man. <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs>
0: Good. We got John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and wellness director at orthopedic and sports physical therapy in White Plains, Maryland. He is also a powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong, also in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He's also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of our newest course, the clinical athlete powerlifting certification. How are you doing, John? Doing well today. Doing well. Nice to be here. Yep. Your beard is looking manly. I'm just gonna let it keep going. <laughs> do you use beard oil? I do now because Eric Lavoie asked me about it. So I had to try. How long? How long did your your beard have to be a, to to be considered oil ready? I don't know. I use That's, it. I'd have to check the research for that. Okay. All right. All right. Maybe. I'll I'll give it a I'll give it a few months. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> That's where I live. We're also joined by a very special guest, Dr. Zach Gabor. Zach is a physical therapist at Boston Physical Therapy and Wellness, which may sound familiar to people because we've now had three members of their awesome team with us, Michael Motto, Steph Allen, and now Zach. Zach is also a founder of the Level Up Initiative, which is an online platform dedicated to driving positive change into healthcare through mentorship of student PTs and new grads. The platform is based on development of mindset, critical thinking, and communication skills, which is friggin' awesome. And with that, Zach is doing a webinar for Clinical Athlete on March 11th titled, Taking Action, What Students and New Grads Can Do to Create Positive Change in Healthcare. And obviously, that is relevant to anyone in healthcare. So we wanted to get Zach on the show to talk all about that stuff. Zach, you're doing awesome things. Thanks so much for being on the show
2: thank you guys for having me. <clears throat> Quinn, truly been listening to Clinical Athlete for a long time. So definitely some pinnacle of the career moment stuff right here. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's an honor to have you, man. So can you tell your six listeners what's led you to the top of the mountain today on the <laughs> clinical <Eco-Glaces> podcast?
2: <laughs> yeah, man. So like you said, we're doing this webinar um, in just a few weeks on what students and new grads can do to take action. I think for me, it was really a reflection of um, as a new grad feeling like, okay, I know that a lot of the stuff that I have learned and doing is not necessarily right. But like, instead of bitching about all the stuff I was seeing online, like, what can I do about it? You know what I mean? So that was really the impetus for creating this webinar, creating Level Up, and really providing guidance and inspiration for students and new grads so they can feel like they are a part of driving change and arguably the most important part of driving change within healthcare and all these systems because it is a big thing to try and shift this paradigm and uh, really believe in the grassroots efforts of trying to get the bottom-up influence there.
0: And clinically, what are your interests?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I've, I guess as after being extremely, you know, entrenched into the biomedical ways of doing things, you know, six months, seven months practicing as a new grad, I was able to make a pretty good shift once a mentor of mine challenged me about just like, what are people coming to you with most of the time? And I was like, I don't know, pain. And he was like, yeah, learn about that. So for the past four years, I've really been diving into the depths of Trying to better understand pain, better understand interpersonal skills, all of the beliefs, expectations, and, you know, embodied cognition, stuff like that, that are really influencing our outcomes. Um, But sprinkled in with a big strength and conditioning bias and movement bias reconciled with this kind of biopsychosocial framework. So that would kind of be my clinical jam in a nutshell. Very cool. And
0: when you go onto the Level Up Initiative, you've you guys kind of lay it down right right off the bat. You you've got the problems. You list a bunch of some of the issues in our current healthcare model, and then you've got you know proposed solutions, and w- which are not they're they're simple in concept, but not easy to implement certainly. Um, and, and that's kind of the impetus and and uh, concept of the webinar you're going to give to us, and we wanted to get into that. A little bit can you just and, and rant as you may the overall issues with the current healthcare model as it stands now what do you see in that
2: yeah so this is like obviously an extremely lots of layers to this question um lots of different things to consider i think from like even just a baseline perspective from a model perspective we're still very much entrenched into a very purely biomedical way of doing things. Um, I saw a great post the other day from a guy named Lars Ave Marie, which is basically like, you know, biopsychosocial models a lot like teenage sex. A lot of people are talking about it, but no one's doing it. So, you know, we see people that are kind of talking about, like, oh, yeah, biopsychosocial, let's empower people. But I don't think people actually understand what that means, nor are they truly acting out on that. So, you know, to, to speak on that again, this is going to be super ranty. So weren't to all of you out there. Right. It's kind of goes back to a lot of issues where we're first being encultured from a societal level. You know, before we even go to PT school, we are very much um, socialized by this sort of folk culture of biomedicine. And that's sort of when we're going into school. That was why I wanted to go to PT school. I was excited to be this, you know, joint crack in adhesion breaking like sexy physical therapist doing all these things you're still sexy thank you um and uh but you know but it's like so i think a, a big part of it is that's how we're in culture that's a big part of how we're socialized before we even get into school. And then we're extremely further in by a lot of these values within an academic setting. So there's definitely schools that are doing a better job of being more progressive and championing a biopsychosocial framework, but we're still very far behind in the sense of schools are teaching to boards, boards are very biomedical. And they're finding a lot, you know, a lot of the people in power and influence are unable to kind of like break through and teach some of these different perspectives because it challenges the dogma of centuries of work, and it's not on the boards too. So I, I don't know. There's there's so many layers, which I'm sure we'll unpack now. But that's I guess my uh, opening my opening statement. Try to unpack. Can you can you differentiate
0: between biomedical and biopsychosocial? What do you, when you say biomedical, how do you distinguish that framework?
2: Yeah, so, you know, my take on it would basically be a a biomedical framework is essentially, you know, very much a dualistic model in the sense that it's body as machine, where we're able to break problems into parts, and we're able to like, say, oh, this part is a problem, let's fix that. And now let's get you better. And it's looking at very much purely like mechanical or or biological constituent parts as part of the problem. Whereas biopsychosocial would be taking more of a holistic view of that, where in the sense that it's appreciating how all these biological factors, which we still need to consider highly, are you can't separate them. They are entwined with social and cultural and psychological factors what we need to consider how all of these interplay amongst each other to give the best service for the humans that we are um you know treating do you see the same issues in physical therapy
0: school or just any healthcare profession the the programs the educational programs you see the same issues being addressed or not being addressed versus uh, with with healthcare as well, like we're taught this biomedical model, right? And thus we practice in that way. And then we learn about this biopsychosocial model almost after the fact, you know, after after we graduate, after we're getting some skin in the game, all of a sudden, we're like, Oh, whoa, there's this, this thing, what is this? And then you <laughs> and then you, you know, dive deep. So and, and I think that's one of the reasons that you started the level up initiative is is to get people aware of these things a little earlier on, right? So can you speak about the current status of healthcare graduate programs in your
2: view? Yeah. And, you know, I will forewarn this by saying my view is basically you know, so we have applications for level up. So you know, we had over 300 applications for this past cohort of passionate students and new grads that are answering some of these questions. So my understanding is based off of the perspectives from these applications, but essentially um, the majority of schools still are very much they're out as they're teaching for boards. They have people in power that have been doing things the way they've been doing them forever. And they're not really showing that intellectual humility and growing and teaching these new concepts granted there's individuals and programs that are kind of like the uh i don't know what's the right word but every program probably has a couple of morals that are within it that are kind of championing this biopsychosocial framework and kind of like hinting at it but um you know from my understanding the major, the overwhelming majority of programs are still very much entrenched into teaching this biomedical perspective where they're touching on some um, aspects of biopsychosocial but it's not like um, how's the how's the best way to describe it it's like they talk about it but it's not like valued it's not it's not hammered down as important it's just kind of like okay so here's this other stuff that you know you got to know about but it's not really like your HVLA elective that you're super excited for, or your pathokinese course that you're super excited for. So it's just not, um, it's not like emphasized as much as I think it should be.
0: And when we talk about clinical, the clinical world here, we maybe think about chronic low back pain in this regard. And I think you're going to go over a paper in your webinar um, out of the, the Lancet. And it's, low, it's titled "Low back Pain: a Call for Action." And can you talk a little bit about your view on how we can uh, how the biopsychosocial model becomes relevant in a condition like chronic low back pain, which is so so common, and, and uh, differentiate that with the biomedical model in, for care in chronic low back pain. What are the differences in something like that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanna try and pull this quote really quick. Okay, so this is from a, this is from a piece from George Engel, who's one of the founders of the quote unquote biopsychosocial model formally, even though it's been around for centuries. And he talks about the biomed the biomedical approach to disease has been successful beyond all expectations, but at a cost. For in serving as a guideline and justification for medical care policy, biomedicine has also contributed to a host of problems which I shall consider later. Um, So I think that George does a great job of kind of alluding to this. Hey, biomedicine does a great job of you know certain aspects but at a cost and what he means with that cost is talking about um you know the iatrogenic and nocebo effects of a purely biomedical model and i know you guys just had your journal club on that article about nocebo so i know the clinical athlete listeners are woke to this concept for some time but basically you know my take on it would be that when we are when we are communicating narratives to patients that really further solidify this body as machine perspective, which is kind of what we're taught to point out all these dysfunctions. We are further instilling these belief systems um, which might influence their actions, their coping strategies and how they're gonna end up taking care of themselves to manage this autonomously. Um, Where a biopsychosocial framework would understand that, you know how we communicate these things is super important because we have to understand that you know just because someone has low back pain they might not have any real like biological issues an example of that would be like a very reductionist example of that would be like imaging where someone has low back pain they get imaging, there's no findings. So they're like, well, I still feel this pain, or I still have, you know, it's still affecting my life in this way. But when you look at it through a purely biomedical lens, you end up trying to reduce these other problems down into something they're not. And it can create this nasty negative feedback loop of disuse, fear avoidance, kinesophobia, where a biopsychosocial framework would be able to understand the other factors like How are they socialized? What are their beliefs about this? What did their friends tell them about this? What did other medical providers tell them about this? What are their expectations about what they're thinking needs to happen to get better? So it's really just understanding that lived experience of the human in front of them and trying to navigate and problem solve together, um, which I think is a key component as well. It has to be this collective collaborative approach to empower them and provide this uh, self-efficacy.
0: Is there we you know, we talk about like pendulum swings too, but to be clear also, we're not saying, you know, there it's biopsychosocial. Right. So it's not that we're saying, Oh, there is no bio a part of this. But the way that, you know, I try to understand these things is especially in rehab professions, we are trained to be pathologists. Right. We're we're trained to look for problems you know the assessment is kind of like it's like we're we're looking for whatever we can to intervene on but the problem is we aren't great at accurately finding or diagnosing or prognosticating we're not super good at that stuff yet wow. and so we've we've <clears> got all these tests to uh, to find biological problems but the tests themselves aren't great at you know, they don't have great validity or they're not super reliable or their likelihood ratios aren't, aren't really that good. And, and when we spend so much money learning about these things in school, we're biased to use them. And it's, it's a very hard thing to,
2: to change. Oh, Go ahead. yeah. And that's I mean, that's the terrible irony of it all, though, is like not only are they like specific or sensitive and helping to rule these things in or out, but by focusing on that and creating this vigilance, we're arguably perpetuating the issue. <laughs> and that's, you know, one of the things that we'll definitely talk about in the webinar is, I think that we're kind of going down the wrong path by focusing on treating pain. It's ironic within itself, because by focusing on treating pain, we're kind of perpetuating this issue, but what I would propose is rather focusing on treating disability and you know creating more self-efficacy and autonomy. And as a byproduct, you probably get reduction in pain. But you know it's kind of this mismatch where we're so focused on like fixing pain that we're I think we're our own worst enemy in a sense, and we have this very human um, instinct to feel terribly uncomfortable with the uncertainty of it all. I think Would you say? That, a bit, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. To add a no, little yeah. bit of a wrinkle to that,
3: um, and make it even more complex is the patient expectation of long-term narrative that they're fragile. Um, they come in and
0: they they see a practitioner, maybe for the first time or one of us for the first time, and there's almost a process of de-education that has to happen, where we have to
3: kind of show them that they're anti-fragile or that they're robust. And we have, to it's very difficult because it perpetuates that same cycle. Well, right. you come in and you're telling me all these things and so now I have to do all these tests to figure out exactly what's wrong so that I can give you an answer because you're telling me something's wrong.
2: Well, and, that, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's literally exactly it, man. It's, it's a tough, it's really a tough thing right now because, you know, we're, they have societal expectations of coming in and getting fixed and then trying to create value with what we're doing by empowering them and de-educating them becomes a tougher battle for us, you know?
3: Because mm-hmm.
2: it's much easier to come up with a narrative
3: and a, a quick modality and get some temporary relief than it is to to build that self-efficacy, which is going to be longer term.
1: It's a lot sexier,
2: that's for sure. Oh, Yeah yeah absolutely man totally and that's the funny thing too is you know so quinn to your statement before i think it's worth bringing it up like it's uh biopsychosocial advocates like myself are constantly straw manned by others and for those who don't know what a straw man argument is it's basically when someone misrepresents the the statement that you're making so and attacks it so essentially. Um, Folks will say, "Oh, Zach, you don't care about biology or biomechanics or pathokinesiology, and that couldn't be further from the truth. It's really just trying to encompass all of this into one holistic model that appreciates all the value. And then John, speaking to what you were just saying too, it's funny, right? Because I remember there was this article that came out that Laura Mermosley put out earlier this year, which was like, all the anti-like biopsychosocialists were like, yes, acute pain education isn't shown to be any better than sham education. Ha, see, biopsychosocial model doesn't work. And it's like this massive straw man argument where people are missing the point. And I think that, you know, when it comes to pain science and education and self-efficacy, the goal is not to reduce pain, which it was shown to be effective for. It's about creating self-efficacy and autonomy and championing what The Lancet proposes as this positive health concept. So I think the sooner we can shift from focusing on treating pain, you know, that's not the goal. The goal should be to try and improve function and decrease disability. And I think that's what the research would support at this time rather than trying to find this panacea to treat pain.
0: Speaking of straw man, another maybe rebuttal that you always that you'll get sometimes is at what at what time at what line do we start to become psychologists versus physical therapists or or other, you know, insert rehab professional here? (laughs) And are we just are we just sitting there and talking kumbaya to our patients for an hour about how about their feelings and their beliefs? How do you push back on that? Because I know you've heard it.
2: Oh, yeah, no. Well, that's, we just, you know, we, we write poetry together and we just sit in there and talk about our feelings. <laughs> no, I mean, we, we, you hear that all the time. Like, I remember, like, when I was a new grad and I went to a dry needling course with uh, James Dunning, I remember him being like, we're physical therapists, physical. And I'm like, huh, ah, like, it gets, ta- like, yes, we are physical therapists. We encourage movement, loading, exposure back to meaningful activities. And that's within the context of also reshaping maladaptive cognitions and beliefs that are going to influence their said ability to get back to meaningful activities. So there's absolutely that physical component to what we're doing without a doubt. We, sh- If anyone's sitting there and only just talking with no coaching of movement or anything like that, or even manual therapy, like then, you know, we're missing the mark too. You know, it's, it's a, it's a combination of all of these things.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the concept of de-education John brought that up a little bit earlier, but the idea of, of actually intervening to address misconceptions, you know, and not just addressing them at, at a whim, but making that as a, as a point of emphasis in your, in your program, is yeah. that something that you guys address?
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think obviously draw a lot of inspiration on this and info from the likes of like Peter O'Sullivan and some of the like the cognitive functional therapy uh, blokes out of, you know, England, Australia. And it's really so I guess what it comes down to is like and this is what, you know, Amato and I and Steph talk about when we're like musing on the philosophies of our treatment is like if someone comes in with shoulder pain, let's say, and, you know, If more of the underlying thing is like their behaviors associated with it rather than like this structural fix or like trying to reduce it down to this biomechanical thing, like we're always trying to get to the bottom of a more kind of like perspective shift that might be driving all of their behaviors, which might have led to the possible susceptibility to experiencing pain. So for us, like we we really champion this sort of behavior change because We believe that that is in the truest sense trying to get to the bottom of empowering them through first shaping their cognitions. And, you know, de-education really just talks about if someone comes in with low back pain and they feel like, you know, They're scared to move because they saw a spine explode on Instagram. Then, you know, that's going to be a major thing that we talk about first is, you know, why do you think that? Why do you think it's inherently dangerous? And trying to utilize some motivational interviewing strategies to get to the bottom of it and ultimately help to begin to plant the seeds of behavior change.
0: Do these concepts change when you've got? So let's say post-op ACL reconstruction versus chronic low back pain for 15 years. Do the principles change or are they just implemented to varying degrees?
2: Yeah, that's a great point, Quinn, because that's like, you know, some folks, I don't even end up having these Really these conversations at all. You know what I mean? If they're not really having any sort of maladaptive beliefs or anything sketchy like that, like I'll probably throw hints of it in there just as like part of my educational, um, fix, but it's not necessarily as in depth with certain things. So, but yeah, the principles remain the same for folks that are coming in post op ACL chronic neck pain, plantar fasciopathy, like whatever it is, there's always a time and place because we're dealing with humans that have these beliefs. And it's always something to be addressed at some point. It doesn't always need to be a thing that happens like during that in- that initial console. It just should be a theme that's sprinkled in appropriately per your clinical judgment and appraisal of the situation. Do you think some things
0: that just like solutions, we talk about solutions with this stuff and right. you know, we've got clinical athlete, we've got the level up and the, and other groups who are doing great things along these lines, but we're all kind of on the outside trying to kind of Can get you? people to understand these. Yeah, exactly. Right. We talk about the actual healthcare system. What are some changes that you feel would be beneficial in regards to a kind of an inside out change? And, you know, insurance reimbursements for,
2: for certain types of treatments and these types of things. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's like you, you have to, I like this uh, call to action series by the Lancet because they did a good job of breaking it down into different parts. There's like political things that need to change. There's healthcare things that need to change academic things that need to change. So, you know, from, you know, I guess the two talking points I would, you know, feel comfortable discussing is at the sort of, healthcare policy level and then through an academic lens. So from a healthcare policy level, I think one of the things it talks about is being incentivized differently through the insurance model. And I think I really like that point where it talks about how if we can start to shift providers that are championing this this mindset of using fewer visits, being more efficacious with visits, we should be rewarded for that and rather than penalized. And I think that that would be a really cool shift for policymakers to start to you know, consider because I think it would help some of the fringe people feel a bit more compelled. Like I would, that's the also the irony of it is I would hate for people like people shouldn't be driven by incentives. People should be driven because it's the right thing to do. But for those that are on the fringe, having these more incentive based things would probably push them over to consider it. Um, And then, you know, from an academic standpoint, I think that's where things like clinical athlete comes in and level up initiative and barbell medicine and these companies that are investing in students because, you know, that was why I started level up was students are the ones that are going to be the real drivers of change at an academic level. It's not going to be a bunch of antagonistic, you know, angry new grads and post professionals that are like, hey, can we do better? Can we do something about this? Like, it needs to come from the students themselves because they're the ones that are paying the money. So they have a little bit more say about what's going to happen. So my thought would Level Up is, well, if we can influence students and new grads to become agents of advocating for these culture shifts, these different things they want in their curriculum, and we can start to create alliance and collaborate with schools, perhaps we can start to shift that culture of academia and, and hopefully start to shift some of the questions on the board so that some of those other fringe schools are incentivized to change their curriculums as well, or rather modify. right? And that's what it's all about is just updating it. But I think it has to come from an inside out approach in the sense of, so back to the policy example, clinicians have to start treating that way and incent- and being incentivized by fewer visits. And then stu- and having students in the academic setting being leaders, like leading by example and, and kind of championing this mindset and getting that shift from the inside out. Whew. Yeah, well, there's a, yeah, there's a ton to consider. You can
0: have the, if we can get to the point where the education is, is altered a bit or like the board questions are changed, I mean that. That's going to take some some time and some, and some layers and some chipping away, and then you've got all oh, these new grads are excited and ready to go, and then they're hired by a physical therapy chain company who sees 25 people a day and they're been entrenched in that model and they're making good money doing it and and then here's this student you know wanting to make a change, and now they're, the voice is just kind of being drowned out and so it's, but it's just going to have to take consistency over and over and over and over, and then the, the change will you know, it was such a drift, but to the title of your webinar, you know, what students and new grads can do to create positive change? Is it, is it really just about being a voice and, and doing the best you can and, and being okay with getting mushed in the face a few times and coming back?
2: Yeah. I mean, to an extent that's part of it, but I think really like there's also their strategy to it. So one doesn't simply have a paradigm shift by being like hey here's all the stuff we could be doing better like let's do it like i think that it has to come from a a strategy of like how can we effectively have behavior change like how can we coach that even within amongst like an intra-professional standpoint so you know really what we talk about a lot in level up initiative is trying to equip students and new grads with better strategies for having these difficult conversations, because it's really taboo to have these conversations. It's really taboo to challenge the norm. And you know, having a culture that is more okay with having these difficult conversations and having students and new grads that feel more comfortable navigating these situations in a less antagonistic way. So that's an area that I've grown tremendously over the past year or two through my own reflection is I am admittedly and was extremely antagonistic. And it's hard not to be when you're like fired up and you're like, oh my God, how could we be doing this? Like we're doing all this bad stuff and like blah, 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 blah. Everyone's trying to do the best they can. So I think that like having... Having a little bit more of that tempered, radical approach where we're able to be less antagonistic, starting to explore why people are thinking what they're thinking, and trying to work work better together and collectively to push the needle. I think that's also a really important theme in creating change and taking action is learning how to be more effective change agents through conversation and discussion. Does that make sense? Oh, it, it, it totally sense. You guys- I think that's part of it, right? You, yeah, Yeah, like the backfire effect, right? Like, you know, you guys recommend, um, what is it, you are not so smart podcast. And I think that's a big problem is that we've siloed ourselves by being too antagonistic and being too tribal in a sense where it's just having more of that embrace of trying to work collectively, right? One of the pushbacks
0: that I'll hear about just you know critical thinking, uh, not a pushback on it, but but these more philosophical conversations that happen is that we still have clinic work to do. These conversations are you know it, these conversations are awesome to have, and it gets you thinking and it gets you fired up, and you are like, I need to be better, and I I am going to dive into the literature, and then on Monday you still have that patient sitting in front of you, and it's just like, oh crap, what do I do, and yeah. Do you have do you give students recommendations or do you talk to them about how to balance? And they're students, obviously, so maybe they're just dealing with their clinical rotations, but new grads right. are just deer in the headlights already. You know, and now they're getting yeah. inundated with this. Oh, what I some of the things I learned in school may not be up to date. Okay, I'll learn more, I promise, but holy crap, I've got <laughs> I've got Bob in front of me with back pain. <laughs>
2: So, you know, um, did you see that post that went viral? I think it was last weekend, Chad Cook's slide from like a presentation, which was basically like facts about what manual therapy doesn't do. Dude, I got like 10 DMs from students in Level Up that messaged me that. And they're like, what do we do now? This is what we're <laughs> learning in school. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, that's, uh, that's like the stages that we go through, right? Like, you know, people like when I found out about Clinical Athlete at a time that I was already very open to challenging my beliefs. But like when I first graduated, Clinical Athlete would have had me super butt hurt because it dissolves what you just spent three years learning. And so it's this weird thing where we want to encourage like, How can we dissolve someone's framework? We need to give them something in return. So that's another theme from that episode on backfire effect is that when you're challenging someone's beliefs, you have to, if you're taking away a leg of their table, you have to give them another one. And so that's where I tell them, take advantage of, there are so many amazing online things, clinical athlete, barbell medicine. You guys provide so much free content, level up, like modern pain care, some really good accounts on social media. There's. It's easier than ever. To get quality continuing education, Um, but it has to be something that's meaningful to you. Because yes, you have Bob in front of you on Monday, and so you know what I'll say to them is, it's also it's okay to fail. Like you're not, don't expect to go in on Monday and have a total paradigm shift in the way that you treat. You start to take away some of these nuances and messages that you're learning, and you grow. It's it's like a maze that you're navigating. It's not as easy as just like you know, again. Freaking Ned Stark memes for days, but one does not simply just embrace this paradigm shift in a weekend. It's, that's, that's Boromir
1: from Lord of the Rings.
2: It's you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's really, it's really taking that, really, really taking on that idea that like it takes time and it's okay to fail, but the only way you're going to get better is through failing at trying to apply it. And so that's another really important message that we really advocate for with level up is that you know failure is. Key to growth. And it's something that should be really cherished by new grads and students because it's hard because we come from these academic settings where all we want to do is succeed and be the best. And so failing is terrifying to them. But that's the best advice I ever got as a new grad from one of my professors when I was considering residency. I was like, should I do residency? And she was like, no, go out and treat and fail and learn how to talk to humans. You're going to be way better off for it. And I was like, huh. And it was the best advice, some of the best advice I ever got.
3: We talked about that a little bit during the journal club with Nocebo, is you're going to be wrong. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to say something that five years down the road, you're going to go, ah, that's really dumb. But you have to be able to grow from that. And it's really difficult for people because especially if you – what I see a lot is that people take their clinical practice and use it as part of their identity. Yep. And as soon as you start to challenge that and you start to say that's wrong – And all of a sudden, it's not that my clinical reasoning might not be all the way there. It's you're saying that I'm wrong, that I don't know how to do my job. And that's not what's being communicated at that point. You just have to kind of set that aside and say, you know, I was wrong. That wasn't the best idea. And I'm going to learn from that and do better next time. It's just very difficult for people to make that. stuff.
2: Yeah. And I, I really loved like that was one of the that was one of the things highlighted in The Lancet was we need to be more effective at having these difficult conversations without being so emotional about it. And the only way we're gonna get better at that is by communicating about it and having these conversations. And it's not gonna happen overnight, but it really does. And that's what I loved about this article. It's it's all about a culture shift. It's about what do we value? How do we want people to act? And that all stems from how we act as individuals and permeate that out You know, from a multiplier effect.
1: Well, I think that's really important. And just for, for me, when I'm when I have students I'm placing with me, I tell them up front that I want them to be as comfortable as they care to be at, at challenging me uh, and calling me out if they disagree or think differently about a given thing. Um, and I've, I've had those same students sort of express gratitude for for knowing that. <clears throat> um, and I sort of explain that by saying like I, I'm, I'm wrong all the time. That's the nature of <laughs> of of, uh, of science or science. The nature of science itself is that we're we're continuing to find out how wrong we have been about these different things and how we can be less wrong in future. So right. it doesn't make sense to me to uh, imply or explicitly state that I'm, you know, uh, I'm the authority figure and, and you should agree with me. If you don't agree, tell me why. And it's happened multiple times where a student has said, hey, why don't you do this with the person? Um, you know, I thought we could have done X, Y, and Z. And I thought, or I say like, oh, I just didn't think of it. That's a great idea. We'll do that next time they're in. You know, It's just a, a process by which we hopefully distill down the better processes of reasoning and, and practice and leave out the the not so accurate or helpful things. Science is imperfect, but it's the closest thing we have.
2: Word.
0: <laughs> well, I think when you're doing... I was going to say... Go ahead, Zach. Yeah, you go, Quinn. No, 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 you go. Well, uh, No, you, man. <laughs> I'm, you. I'm pulling
2: up. A, I'm pulling up. <laughs> I'm pulling up a quote okay. right now. So, well, I'm just going to
0: say when we're dealing with humans, there's not going to be any one thing that works or doesn't work or if we if we think in principles, that's where you can say, "Well, I would have done this." Oh, cool. That's that falls in line with the with that principle, you know? And we all we all have our favorite things to do or even when it comes to education, we all have our favorite analogies and our or favorite punchlines or our favorite jokes that we like to tell every single time and we get a laugh every single time because we tell it <laughs> like it's the first time, but you know, it's, it,
2: oh, when yeah. you, die, you die a little bit on the inside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, My favorite example of that is not necessarily an educational thing, but like if someone is on the table and you're assessing them, they're like, get on your stomach. And then they get on their back and they're like, you're no, your stomach. On you're stomach. Other stomach. <laughs> oh God, I want to kill myself right now.
0: <laughs> the, I think one of the issues too, with some of the, the models out there of the high volume, like the mill clinics that are just rolling through assembly lines of patients is that, Students, new grads, and, uh, and people who have been out for a few years, we don't get deliberate practice to, to better our craft in that environment. Because you don't have the time to reflect on the difficult patient or think about what you did because you're buried in two other patients that just walked in the door, plus all the paperwork that's coming with everyone. And the last thing that you want to do after you leave work, knowing that you've got to be right back in the office at 7am tomorrow, is to think about what you did at work. You want to turn that off. And that's, I think, how we get, first of all, it's how we get burnt out. And second of all, it's how we get stuck in a rut where we're not actually getting better at our skill. It's like any sport. If you just, if you're not deliberately practicing, if you're just going through the motions with the same skill set that you've always had, you're not going to improve. You're just going to further deepen the well of where you are and it's the same with education and getting better clinically it's a it's a skill and it's just hard to get better at that skill if you're not reflecting
2: when you're in that setting yeah 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 and i was going to say to that quinn so um we i think i meant to talk about it earlier when we were talking about the high productivity um mills if you will but so you know i think an important counter argument for that is that You know, it's like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do? Right. And I think in that situation, and I think one of my lifelong goals with, uh, you know, with level up and before I leave this earth is to try and have conversations with some of these bigger corporate companies and seeing if they're able to have a shift in the way they do things. So, you know, for example, they argue well we need to get higher numbers so we can get be more productive make more money da 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 so here's my counter argument you know and i think it's exemplified by how we do it at boston pt and wellness and it's a great example and blueprint is we don't have a high visit per referral so we don't see patients for a lot of visits but we see a shit ton of evals every week and so not only are we still productive and making a profit but we're infecting more people with this empowerment model and making a bigger impact on society. So it is a very feasible model, but it starts with a perspective shift and it starts with the higher ups of these companies having to value that. And one of my goals is you know, if I can build up a big enough following with Level Up, I want to be able to have leverage with some of these corporations and be like, hey, look, We have some amazing PTs that would love to work for you, but they're not going to work and they're not going to stand for this shit. So maybe we can work together and see if we can start to have some of these subtle changes within your value system. And maybe, you know what I mean? So like, because I used to be really antagonistic and be like, okay, first company I worked for, I was seeing 30 patients a day. And that was when I started my Aria Stark list. And I was like, this company will not exist by the time I die. But now going through Level Up myself, And reflecting and being like, no, like I need to stop being so antagonistic. I would rather work with them and help them adapt so that we can make a bigger impact. And I think that that's a really high, far and away goal. And maybe it's unrealistic, but that's definitely something that I'm personally taking on as a goal with Level Up and trying to create a product for corporations to get behind to try and shift their their cultures and their values a little bit, to try and attract more new grads that can practice the way that we're talking about within their systems.
3: And I think we talked about it a little bit before, but to gain leverage there, we have to have a top and we have to have a bottom-up approach, right? So yeah. first thing you kind of mentioned earlier in the podcast is regulation, right? You have to look at what's being reimbursed, where are we getting incentives from, and if you know, reimbursements are going down and it's better to see 150 people a day as opposed to 50 people a day. They're going to try for that volume. Right. But the other thing is from the bottom up to change the workforce, because if you take a job, that's your vote, right? That's how I always kind of look at it. Just like if you spend a dollar, that's your vote on the product. Mm -hmm. You take a job, that's a vote of confidence for that company or that stock. And I know that's kind of a hard pill to swallow for some people. If you do work for one of these larger companies and you might not agree with the mill, but you're in it. Um, you, you still kind of voted there because your work is there. And it's it's a growth opportunity, and I understand that. But if we change the workforce fundamentally from the bottom up, and we have people stop taking those jobs because they want to practice a particular way, right. you start to see them lose power because now their providers are gone.
2: Well, that's a great point, John. And actually, funny you say that, I've had since starting level up, you know, I've had a handful of new grads reach out to me telling me that they quit their jobs because they weren't standing for that shit anymore. And I like sort of felt bad because I'm like, shit, (laughs) they're they're out of work because of like some of the stuff we talk about. But at the same time, I'm super freaking proud because people are standing up for what's right and they're not gonna tolerate that. And I think you're pointing to John that's exactly some leverage that we'll be able to have with some of these bigger corporations is like, hey, either you're not gonna have solid PTs working for you. You're gonna have high turnover rate, which is extremely expensive for you and not like that's cutting. That's a big part of your um, productivity. But here's this new model that can not only be productive, but it can create a really great culture and a really great impact on society. You know what I mean? Yep. But that is very wishful, <laughs> utopian thinking. So it's much, that is going to be much uh, much harder to accomplish than we think. But I think that all the stuff that all these collective groups are doing is pushing that there for sure. We're both probably going to be old before we see that. Yeah. I hope assume- so. I hope before my lifetime, there can be some tangible change, but you know what? Not going to stop. Like I'm, me and Steph joke around. Cause it's like, we're, we're constantly like when we're not at work, we're just talking about PT stuff. And it's like, I feel like we're going to be on our deathbeds when we're like 80 or 90, just being like passionate and fired up about <laughs> taking action and doing some shit. And, uh, yeah, it's a lifelong journey, man. It's, but it's never going to stop until we actually start to see some tangible change. Well, some of the most influential people aren't influential until they die right yeah what's that cliche that change change happens one funeral procession at a time yeah zach if you had to give
0: the first of all we only have six listeners but we got a decent amount of students so i'd say at least at least two of them are students what would be your message because right now they're their chin is quivering they're a little scared because they just had their, cl- they just had class, and they, they learned, you know, they right. learned about the a nineteen eighty two model of of biomedical approach, and they've got clinicals coming up on Monday. If you give just a, a word of advice for the here and now, for for the student who who's kind of in the middle of all of this, confused and just trying to be better at what they're doing, what would it be?
2: Whew, yeah. Um... It's hard to say just one thing, but I guess for that particular instance, I would say starting to be more comfortable with it all and realizing that having that reconceptualization that it is not a change that happens overnight, but rather a journey. And I think that's good too because it parallels the patient care and how we can have effective communication with some patients with deeply instilled beliefs. But so to students and new grads out there that are when your belief systems are dissolved. Reconceptualize the journey aspect of it and realize that this is not going to happen overnight, but feel inspired that every day you take action to learn more and have good mentors that are challenging you and pushing you in the right direction, you will get there. But just knowing, setting that expectation that it does not happen overnight.
0: Yeah, thank you. You learn. You, you go out and you learn externally, and you learn from Level Up and and these these other organizations. And then you go back to clinic and you try to implement maybe one thing that you learned, and you do that yeah. for for a little bit. Yeah. And then you come back and you learn a little bit more. And then you kind of revamp that or you try something else. It's it's this it's just this process of of how we learn anything. Um, you step you step back, you step in, you step back, you step in. You don't have to be perfect. None of us none of us are. I. On a daily basis, I reflect on the day and I think about every patient that I saw, and I pro- and I think about one thing that I probably could have done better. It just pops into my head, ah, you know, I don't yeah. like what I said. I should have. T- I don't like what I said there. We should have done this or should have done that. I mean, it from the every single patient I've ever seen, I've never had somebody who I thought a hundred percent that was just the perfect. Perfect scenario, (laughs) Um, and you know, well, and we learn too that it's not about (laughs) us anyway. You know, we're just we're just trying to. That's
2: and that's a big shift. Yeah,
0: totally. Because we, again, the expectation is that we have to fix people, and we have to be the cure of their pain. And we talked about this in the Clinical Athlete Journal Club about looking at the patient intake form and seeing their goals. I had one yesterday. And I explicitly say in the goal setting, uh, it's already understood that we're going to be managing your pain experience. Please frame your goals around what you want to be able to do. And short-term goal number one, be pain-free. (laughs) Short-term or long-term goal number one, never have this injury again ever, like verbatim. And so I'm like, oh, man, here we go. Yeah, yeah. But but that's also how we're kind of trained. Again, as pathologists, we fix people. We're trying to make them pain-free. Uh, we make these promises. I mean, look at the marketing campaigns of businesses, be pain-free, you know?
2: And it's, it's also terribly ironic. So like I get triggered every time I see that because I understand we're trying to, and this is another one that gives me a visceral reaction, get people through the door, um, which people rationalize as ways to use unethical marketing strategies. But like, I don't necessarily agree with that. And I think that by setting that expectation, we're doing a disservice. And oftentimes I'll say to patients um, in that first visit where I'm like, they're like, so, you know, we're going over the game plan and what exercise, whatever. And, you know, it's funny when I was trained my first job, I always had to print out an HEP with like three exercises on it. And now what I'll say to them is I'll be like, look, with all due respect, if you think that three little exercises I'm going to give you are going to set you up for long-term success, then you're fucking nuts. I don't actually, sometimes I'll drop the F if we have like a good therapeutic alliance, but I won't say it quite like that. But I'm like, look, this is a journey. And I think it's setting that expectation from the get-go. And when you can do that well and persuasively, you're going to have customers for life, man. And that's, I think, what I'm really trying to advocate for is people feel like unless we use some of this scare tactic, fear mongering marketing and some of these empty long term promises, we're not going to get patients in. But I disagree. I think that by empowering people and being authentic and transparent, we're going to be able to tap into more of the population because they're going to be so damn excited that they're going to be the best brand advocates that we have for PT. And they're going to go tell all of their friends and family about the incredible experience they had with you.
0: Totally agree. Zach, this has been awesome, man. Thanks so much. Can oh, I, John, go. I a question. I know he's got. I know he's short on That's time.
2: Fine. No, we're good. I got. I still got. I still
3: got ten minutes. Okay, so you mentioned the population, getting into the population, and one of the things that we talk about on here pretty frequently is the PT world. Yeah. But of our six listeners, we do have some strength coaches, we have personal yeah. trainers, and we have athletes. How do they get involved in assisting us in this change? Because they're part of that foundation as well. They're part of the narrative. They're part of a a large group and population of people who has a lot of touches on
2: our client and, and patient base. What do they do to start pushing this forward as well? Oh, dude, I, yeah, that's like huge. And I think that points to this is a collective effort. It's not just on PT. If we think that, like, I agree, we need to get, we need to get PT right to make a difference, but we need to learn how to collaborate and have these conversations with all these different healthcare agents. And I think that coaches and trainers are in such an amazing position to be a part of affecting change. And so I think it's on us to reach out and create relationships and create that open door. And I think it goes both ways to the coaches and trainers out there too. I've been advocating for some time, like we need to be learning from each other and we need to be working together. And we need to be empowering coaches and trainers to feel comfortable having some of these conversations regarding narratives of pain. Because whether we like it or not, a lot of the people that they're training have these complaints. And whether we like it or not, getting a training certification over a weekend is a really low entry point to working with these clients. And so rather than scoffing at them and creating antagonism, we need, to, we need to create an open door to have these conversations and try and invite them in to help work together collectively to learn from each other and empower them to be mindful of their narratives when they're coaching um, and training uh, people. I know for me recently, it's worked the other way around as well. I've learned a ton from strength
3: coaches. I've been picking uh, Kevin Kahn's brain pretty pretty deep lately on movement variability. And oh, yeah. it, it, if if we go and we kind of pick the brain of people who are in a weight room all day, we can start to, to better understand Therac's prescription, some of the other things that we really need to get a little bit better at as a, as a profession in, in the whole. But I really think we need to bring them along as a population and unite and kind of push forward. Because if we can do that, we get more exposure to the general population, knock down some of those misconceptions and narratives, and we can hit them from a bunch of different angles as opposed to people coming in. Because I've literally had a patient tell me that their trainer told them that their diaphragm was normal. Oh, Uh, Uh,
2: yeah. I mean, that's uh... hard to overcome. That's, that's, that's every day, man, that's every day we get these narratives, right? And um, I think just to your point, I 100% agree. And it's also that concept is analogous to how we should be interacting with MDs and physicians and Kairos and LMTs. And we need to get out of our silos and understand each other's perspectives and, and worldviews and learn from each other because we're all in this mess of healthcare together trying to facilitate change. But unless we have conversations we're all going to continue to kind of be siloed. So it takes it takes agents that are inspired to reach out and do something about it because otherwise shit does not change. So it has to take people taking action to make it happen. And that's where, you know, like, Quinn, I'll be honest with you, dude. Clinical athlete, man, I think you tapped into something years ago. How, how old is clinical athlete now? About three three years. years. Three and, and a half. Four years? Yep. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you, Clinical Athlete is one of the OG networks that really started to unite this, you know, tribe, if you will, of motivated people that want to do better. And it's opened up avenues for other people to feel inspired to create things. And I think that you're just starting to see now this multiplier effect that when I come back to it, I'm extremely grateful to things like Clinical Athlete because I think it's one of the first things that one individual like you fucking just took action and created a company and you started this massive network of people that want to do better and then people create relationships in there and do their own thing whatever but now you're seeing this mess of amazing people whether it's level up barbell medicine clinical athlete like there's so many different nuanced relationships of people taking action and doing things so it's that multiplier effect that's so important and i know personally i am forever grateful um to all the stuff that you've created, and it's uh, it really is an honor to be on this podcast, and a bit full circle for me because you know it's been it's been huge in my career, and I think that the service you're providing for students and new grads is fucking sweet, man, and power in numbers, and we are starting to create you know a bit of a difference whether we like it or not, and you know one last one last little quote that I have here, um, which is for the students and new grads out there on facilitating change is from Nicole Piamonte, who wrote this really beautiful book called Afflicted, which Amato obviously showed me and put me onto. But basically, she says, creating this kind of change is a tall order, to be sure. But we can take steps that will at least get us closer to a more responsible education of our future professionals, provided we no longer approach physician formation in the passive didactic, memorize and regurgitate fashion that has come to define so much of medical education. So for the students and new grads out there, lead by example and really exude these values because you are the ones that are gonna to start to create change by your actions and have meaningful conversations with your professors and your other students and just just make it happen because it's not gonna happen unless you take action and, uh, and do some things. So feed off of the creativity of things like Clinical Athlete and the other groups trying to you know take a step in and do something about it. Love it. Thanks so much, Zach where can people
0: connect with you find you connect with the level up
2: yeah um, so my my personal Instagram that I not like I'm still active on it from a story perspective but I don't really post on it that much um, at simple strength physio um, and then and then Instagram at the level up initiative is our Instagram handle and you are more than welcome to always shoot a DM. We are an open door, love helping students and new grads as much as we can. And yeah, that's uh, I think that's all I got to say about that. When's your next cohort start? Next cohort starts in um, August of 2019 and the applications open for July and um, it's going to be It's starting to become really fun, and we're really starting to develop a really solid curriculum. And I was saying earlier, like one of my goals with Level Up is some people aren't ready to get their belief systems dissolved, like in a in a sense that like clinical athlete barbell medicine people aren't always ready for that right away. And so one of my goals with Level Up is to be kind of that intermediate step for people on the fringe and equip them with that mindset and um, value system where now they can get funneled to really great clinical educators. That are really going to help fill that void. So, you know, that's really one of the big pushes I'm trying to make is be that kind of intermediate step for a lot of the people that maybe aren't quite ready to jump into getting their, you know, beliefs challenged.
0: That's awesome. And again, Zach is going to do a webinar for us on March 11th, all about this stuff. So, tune into that. It's going to be great. We're excited.
2: Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude! I was, uh, I was. I was just going over the intro yesterday and um we got we got some good it's it's fun man i was getting hyped writing it up jared will tell you the physio night out presentation that we did was, it was super great. fun blasted with some relevant memes and uh we'll definitely be sure to leave you feeling excited to be a part of doing something about this this healthcare uh predicament that we're in the meme game better be strong we're looking forward to that
0: Steph Allen don't got nothing on my now. <laughs> All right, oh, we'll have to. Sh- I, might, I might Yeah, exactly. That one <laughs> All right, man. Well, again, thank you so much. Really looking forward to the webinar. You're doing amazing th- stuff with Level Up, and and uh, we look forward to more. Got it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Jared. John, love you.
2: Mwah.